Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And my name is Julie Douglas. And we're talking about skin today. The skin that we live in. The skin that covers our bodies, that is our bodies. Yeah, you know, I've been wanting to tell you this for a long time. Okay. And, and we've been podcasting now for, what, like a year and a half or so? Okay. So I feel like I can finally tell you. Something. Okay. Let me, let me have it. Your epidermis is showing. Oh, it's, we, we were just talking about this. This is, this is the popular second grade, third grade joke, I guess you call it. Yes. Where one person comes to this and says, oh, your epidermis is showing, and it sounds... Dirty. Dirty, or, or oh, what's happening? Something unzipped. Oh, it's just it's my skin, and then that's the, the punchline. Oh, but everyone's skin is showing, right? Right, right. And this here's the thing, though. That that's, that's the deal about skin. It seems not too exciting. The thing that gets <laughs> overlooked. Yeah. A punchline. But it's amazing stuff, and, and as you all can tell, we are going to talk about this today. Yeah, so people have probably heard this fact before, but it is, in fact, the largest organ in the human body. If you've ever gone to a trivia night somewhere, they've probably thrown that one out. It's a favorite on the trivia circuit. If you were to stretch out the average adult skin, it would cover 22 square feet, 2 square meters, and it's a little bigger than a twin bed, and it would weigh about 8 pounds. That sounds a little horrific. It sounds a little like Buffalo Bill, Science of the Lambs, if you were to stretch it out. But yes, if, yeah. you, were, if you were to it do this... It does bring to mind all my favorite and least favorite skinners in fiction, like Buffalo Bill. Yeah. There's, a, there's a fabulous or a horrifying character in Larry McMurtry's Comanche Moon who skins people. There is a terrifying skinning sequence in Murakami's... Oh, which one was it? Not the wind-up. Yeah, yeah, it is the wind-up bird chronicle. There's a Mongolian flayer that flays a man alive. And, of course, yeah. uh, fans of the Game of Thrones series know the, the Bolton clan rather well. It's a horrifying thing to anticipate. One more, skinned. Evil Willow from Buffy. When oh, she eviscerates she someone. Who, who does she get? The Somebody that... Uh, someone who did something to her lady. I don't, I oh, yes, remember. yes, that storyline, yeah. But obviously this was a very dramatic moment. So, yeah, we're going to talk about this. We're not going to talk about evisceration so much as uh, just this, well, this thing that we're you know, wearing just, on us. This is just flavoring. The horror of being skinned kind of drives home just how important it is. It is the surface level of our being. It is the layer with which we sense the world around us. It mm-hmm. is the layer that carries our physical identity. And uh, we tend to have a really hard time living without it. Uh, yeah, we'd be oozing all over. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's pretty important. We clean it, we decorate it, we stretch it and pull it and pierce it. And in 2007, here's a nice stat, 11.7 million Americans underwent some sort of cosmetic procedure. Botox fillers, surgery, so on. That is a 457% increase from a decade earlier. So wow. we're pretty concerned about how we are portraying our skin to the world. And that's not counting tattooing, right? No, exactly, exactly. There's a lot associated with this. There's ego, there's beauty, there's ritual. And here's another little fact I wanted to throw out there. Our relative hairlessness Mm -hmm. is not something that is an adaptation of us wearing clothes or us having descended from dolphins. (laughs) It's it's more to do with our abundance of sweat glands. Hmm. So that's why we are the hairless wonders that we are. Some are the hairless wonders. Yes, some more than others. Like I was, I was watching an older film where they had medallions the other day, and I was thinking, oh, if the medallion comes back as a male fashion accessory, <laughs> there are going to be a number of guys out there who are not who are going to lack the prominent chest hair required to prominently display said medallion. And I was wondering if there is a business opportunity there for me in the marketing of, uh, I guess it'd be like a chest merkin or something. A chest like, merkin. Yeah, or a chest wig, you know, because you don't want that medallion just sitting there on. I just, I mean, this is a good day. I'm going to say this right now. 
you know, Morgan hasn't come up in a long time in conversation. So the fact that you just brought it up, I really appreciate that. I'm sure there are other people out there that you just got some Merkin points with. Yeah. <laughs> we are relatively hairless, except for those who want to maybe go back to the 70s and wear medallions and put a little Rogaine on their chest. But let's just have a little overview of how this wonder skin works for us well, and why it's so important. As we mentioned before, you know, without it, we would be oozing Clive Barkery horror shows. And that's telling because the skin is a protective layer. You can think of it as the wall, all right? Mm-hmm. Inside all of our guts and our bones and all this, it's very important, but you can think of it as like a medieval city. And we recently discussed walls in an entire mm-hmm. episode, and we discussed the importance of those walls surrounding that city to protect it from marauders and invading armies and barbarians. Well, same deal with the skin. The skin is there. This is the wall around the city. And the white blood cells are the soldiers manning that wall to fight off the bacterial invaders that would come in. That's and the loot first line the of city. defense on yeah. the epidermis, right? Yes. Um, and that epidermis is also helping to produce melanin, which we'll talk about in a little bit. So we have a second line of defense. This is the dermis. Yes. And this is like sort of the meat of the sandwich, I think of it as. Yeah, this is where you find blood vessels. It's full of collagen, which gives it the firmness that we encounter with skin. And it's also where you'll find sweat glands and the hair follicles. And it contains all these nerve endings Mm -hmm. as well that allow us to feel sensations such as heat, cold, and pain. And as we've discussed in the past, in discussing pain, when our pain sensation is working appropriately, it is an important warning sign that something is wrong, that something has pierced the defenses, that something may pierce the defenses, that something Mm -hmm. may damage the walls of our being. It also tells our immune system, like, hey, by the way, we've got stuff going on. Why don't you get into the action here? Because we tried to vanquish this bacteria with our white blood cells, but, you know, possibly you should get in on the game as well. Right. And those blood vessels also have an important role to play in regulating our body temperature. Mm -hmm. We touched on some of this when we were discussing the possibility and impossibility of gigantic creatures. And that was one of the things that came up in discussing like King Kong, is that you have a body that big, you've got to cool a body that big mm-hmm. and regulate its temperatures. So uh, blood vessels in the skin contract and dilate depending on the outside temperature. So when it's cold outside, blood vessels contract to keep the blood near the surface of your skin from becoming too cool. Mm-hmm. And when it's hot outside, the same vessels expand to encourage heat loss and you begin to sweat. Ah. So that's what's keeping us all nice and comfortable. And then we have the hypodermis, which is just basically attaching the skin to the bones and the muscles. Yeah, this is the innermost layer, and it's just the ground level of the skin. The tethering system. Yeah. Yeah. So our skin has to do a couple things. It has to absorb enough ultraviolet radiation from the sun to manufacture vitamin D, which our bodies really need to keep our bones strong and healthy. Oh, I forgot the sebum. Oh, see, oh, if, sebum. If the white blood cells are the soldiers manning the walls. And the yeah. sebum, they're like the outside force that kind of patrols right outside the gate. Our pores pump out this oily sebum stuff, which is more difficult for bacteria to penetrate. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just another protective layer. It's a nice little sheen yeah. on our skin. Can put it and it also helps way. to regulate body heat. Yes. Yeah. So it's doing all sorts of things, and it is also using and harnessing the power of the sun, right, to mm-hmm. manufacture vitamin D keeping us healthy, also keeping our immune systems in check. 
and it protects us from the damage of too much ultraviolet radiation from the sun. Because if you get too much UV radiation, that destroys something called folate. And folate is really important in terms of cell function and cell reproduction. Folate deficiency is actually linked to neural tube birth defects during pregnancy. That's why a lot of pregnant women take supplements for it. But this is something we're getting to here is this idea that our skin isn't just a protective covering, making sure that our organs don't fall out, but that there's other little nuanced things going on at the level where melanin is produced. Yeah, melanin is a pigment that's produced in specialized skin cells called keratinocytes. And the more melanin you have, the darker your skin happens to be. So hormones and genetics play a role in this, and it determines how much a pigment our bodies will produce. And it also explains the wide variety of skin tones that we have. Like you even have two siblings that share the same parents, but they'll have slightly different skin tones going on. Or sometimes not even so slight. And this is called the biological adaptation. It's a trait that's evolved over time because it increases the likelihood that that person will survive long enough to produce. Professor and author Nina Jablonski did a great TED Talk about the illusion of skin color. And she talks about this fact that we are so connected to our early ancestors. We are connected by our DNA, by our mitochondrial DNA. And yet we have these differences in our skin pigmentation. And a lot of this seems like, yes, this all makes sense. But when she talks about it in this way, it's really fascinating. She talks about it by saying, let's look at what the earliest humans were dealing with in terms of their environment and why they had such a concentration of melanin in their skins. They had evolved in high UV environments in equatorial Africa. And again, it's important to drive home again. Melanin helps absorb the harmful ultraviolet rays of the sun. So light-skinned people have a greater tendency to get sunburned than dark-skinned people, and that's where we also see tanning come into play. Right. right. So you think about melanin as a natural sunscreen. Right. Yeah. And so we're looking back at this early environment on Earth, and we know that melanin has been in production for millions of years, and we've got the earliest humans hanging out near the equator, and that is being bombarded, that atmosphere, by UVB, UVA, and UVC. Now, UVC is uh, pretty much sort of being filtered out mm-hmm. in the atmosphere, but UVB and UVA are really killing it. And UVB can be really destructive, and yet it's also really important, as we've talked about, in producing um, or helping your skin to produce vitamin D. Especially when you're dealing with early civilizations where people are not working office jobs nine to five. I mean, everyone is more or less out in the open. And if you're living in an area that's not, say, heavily wooded, that doesn't benefit from a lot of cloud cover, Mm -hmm. then you're going to be absorbing this stuff on a fairly regular basis. Well, and in this small concentration of area, right, like Mm -hmm. between tropics of Cancer and Capricorn, this is where early man is setting up shop because most of the rest of the earth is way too cold, Mm -hmm. is way too harsh. So, yeah, you're going to have to be dealing with this environment, and your skin is actually going to naturally select to pigment itself to to create this sunscreen for itself. But Jablonski says, okay, what happens is that we then have migration. Yes. And humans disperse not once but twice major moves outside of our equatorial homeland from Africa into other parts of the old world and then most recently in the new world. And she says that when they were dispersed into these latitudes, conditions were significantly colder, of course, but they were also less intense with respect to the ultraviolet regime, as she calls it. So over thousands of years, we see individuals move from brighter, warmer climates Mm -hmm. to colder, darker climates. Mm -hmm. And then over the course of 
say, a single generation or even less, you'll have this new migration where someone will move from these darker, colder regions right back to where they started from, more or less, in terms of heat and uh, and light right. within just a few years. Yeah, so all of a sudden you do have some of these lands opening up as the climate warms, right? Mm-hmm. And it becomes possible to live in the northern climes. And you have dark-skinned people who begin to adapt, as you say, within generations to this. Mm-hmm. And they begin producing less melanin and become lighter-skinned. And I just think it's fascinating because this is the reason why we have this array of colors. And she makes this incredible point to Blonsky. She says that we don't need a proof of concept to explain evolution that is overly complex. She says, just look at your skin and you can see the evidence of natural selection at play. Yeah, it's pretty fascinating. And it really changes the way you look at different skin pigments among different racial groups, just based on where they are in the world. Well, and I think that it's given science and particularly medicine a better understanding of how our environment really affects our health. Mm -hmm. So if you are someone who is light-skinned and you're living near the equator, then you have the very real possibility that you're going to be deficient in folate. And so you needed to take supplements for that. If you were dark-skinned and you were living in extreme northern climes, then you're going to take vitamin D because you're right. not going to produce nearly enough from the weak UVB coming through in the and, northern And really, climes. I mean, a lot of us, anyway, in the modern world do not get enough vitamin D anyway. Right. Because we, like I say, we, now we're living these lives where we're inside for 9 to 5 in many cases. So we're not, we're not out in the open to receive that vitamin D in the quantities that we have evolved Well, for. and sunscreen, mm-hmm. actually. So. I know that there have been some studies about the deleterious effects of sunscreen on us in terms of our immune systems and vitamin D deficiencies, and even some of the things that have been cropping up, just things like allergies in kids, things that didn't used to exist previous to, like, the 1970s, really. Yeah. <laughs> because we are slathering ourselves in sunscreen, which you have to do, right? But Again, if you are not really getting that exposure you need, then you can't synthesize vitamin D for yourself. Yeah, it's like you're sort of damned if you do, damned if you don't, right? Yeah. It's like if I go out without sunscreen, I get burned. If I go out with sunscreen, then I need to take vitamin D, so... It's true. It's true. You know, I think it's time to bring the sexy on in in the form of the future of skin, but before we do that... Yes. Quick break. uh, Yeah, quick break. All right, we're back. So we've discussed skin, how it works, what it does, what kind of goes wrong with it as we drag it into the modern age with us. But now we're going to drag it even farther into the future with us. We're going to take skin with us and try to imagine what our skin is going to be like in the years to come. All right. But this is really some very cool stuff that's on the horizon here. And before we go into that, I did want to mention that there is something that sounds futuristic that's already in play, and this is called spray-on skin, and this is for burn victims. So I've mentioned that because we're going to talk about this stuff, and you may say, "Uh, I don't know if this is going to come to fruition, but things like spray-on skin or the skin gun, as it's called, also seemed like it might never come to fruition, and it certainly did. So what do we got here? Well, just on the subject of skin growing and skin spraying. There's an interesting project from the Fraunhofer Institute of Interfacial Engineering and Biotechnology. They have set up a new skin factory that can supposedly produce 5,000 penny-sized discs of whitish translucent skin every month. Mm -hmm. And they can also do varying darker shades as well. Robots control the skin growing process, monitoring the cell broth, and carefully slicing swatches to prevent infection. So, this is the kind of thing we can and will use in skin grafts. Mm-hmm. You know, you have situations where someone has lost skin, particularly to burns, and what do you have to do? You have to get skin from elsewhere in the body and move it forward. That's why my friend Oz, who was shot with a flaming arrow when he was a kid, 
Uh, yeah, sure. Because weren't we all? Yeah, as kids do. And so okay. he has butt skin on his shoulder. Mm-hmm. He's very proud of. At least call it like his butt shoulder. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, because A, he has, he has a story about being shot with a flaming arrow. Which, which is... Which Fine is, enough right Yeah, there. which is a pretty great story to have. And then he also has the, he can talk about how it's his butt skin. But in other cases, skin is grafted from cadavers even. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in the best of circumstances, though, we're talking about a complex procedure that would be better suited if we just had some newly fresh grown custom skin on right. hand. And that one, too, if I remember correctly, they can actually add the pigment in there. They can change the different colors of skin. Yes. For that. Yeah. There's also something using spider silk. Oh, this is neat. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The scientists in Germany are using spider silk as a biocompatible, biodegradable adhesive matrix for skin repair. So kind of a scaffolding. Yeah, we yeah. talked about scaffolding mm-hmm. when we talked about growing organs. You really need some sort of structure that's underlying all this. So they're using dragline silk from golden orb web spiders, and they wove matrices on steel frames and seeded them with fibroblasts, which provided the structural background for connective tissue. And then they added skin cell progenitors and were able to cultivate synthetic skin. Again, that's that sort of broth that you were talking about. And they were able to create dermis and epidermis, mm-hmm. which is amazing. Now, the drawback on that is it's going to be really hard to harvest a lot of spider fibers, right? Mm-hmm. So the idea is to take these spider webs and then just sort of synthesize them and create you know, something similar to, to this natural structure. Didn't we engineer a goat that milks spider web, or did I dream that? Uh, I'm going to say it sounds a little surreal, a little dreamlike. I believe this was a project that some scientists were working on. I'd have to fact check that. It's projects like that that uh, that could also be, you know, it's like we want spider webbing to serve as a scaffolding for these skin grafts. But if we could tinker with another animal and Mm -hmm. get it to produce the spider, like a goat produces spider web that is then used to grow human skin. I mean, that's... That's kind of beautiful. Cycle of life. <laughs> Matt, uh, our producer, just agreed with us. That's possible. I think I think that if that's in your head, that that is real. Uh, then there are somewhere. Number, <laughs> but then there are also a number of more techie skin things that are out there developing. For instance, MIT engineers have built nanoparticle tattoos. Yeah. And these are designed to help diabetics continuously monitor glucose levels. And this flows in with some of the technology we were discussing in our Contact Lenses of the Gods article. Mm-hmm. The idea that you would have these uh, little uh, receptors, nanotechnology in the lens that could interact with the fluids on the surface of your eye and then could signal you if something was up. Similar situation with the tattoos. You could have a tattoo in place and you could have uh, fluorescent dyes and sensor molecules that bind to certain chemicals. And then you could flash some ultraviolet light on Mm -hmm. it, and you could detect what is actually going on inside you if you're having a... Right, like you have an iPhone app that that would send that information to a computer to be analyzed. Yeah, and it it could be used to test for things like, you know, to help diabetics monitor glucose levels and things of that nature. Yeah. There's also something that's really cool, and it is a peelable electronic circuit. Oh, yes. Uh, Skin put. No, 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 not skin put. That's a different one. I'm jumping ahead. Uh, Skin put's really cool, too, though. Uh, But that can be rubbed onto the skin just like a temporary tattoo, and the small circuits can bend and stretch with the skin, and the semiconductor circuits could be used to monitor muscle activity, heart activity, or even brain waves, and you get it off just as you would a temporary tattoo. You just kind of rub it off with a little soap and water. Yeah, so almost like a patch, except even less intrusive. Yeah. But you mentioned skin put. That I am... The most excited about. Yeah, that's a project created at Carnegie Mellon University and Microsoft Research. And it turns your arm or, or, I don't know, your back, I mean, but really anything's on the table, I guess, into a touch screen. So in the case of your hand, you have a, a small armband, and a user would project 
an information display onto the skin. So it would be you know, a projection of, say, a keyboard or some sort of input display. And you would press the skin like you would an iPhone or any other touchscreen. And the armband contains an acoustic sensor that uses the tissue density and other biometric data to determine where you've tapped. So it's projecting this little keyboard onto your hand, and then the band would also detect where you're touching on that keyboard where you're yeah. touching on your screen. So if you yeah. think Bluetooth, if you think that made everybody look insane, just wait until we get this little keyboards on our skin <laughs> and we all are poking ourselves. You know, the, the early adopters at least. I like the idea of it using other people's backs for it, you know, because it kind of plays with the whole deal. You'd see in TV shows where someone needs to sign a paper and they would have the person in front of them lean over so they could sign on their back. Well, and I could see that like a cheesy like sitcom plot point too, yeah. like take your shirt off so I can use your back. As I don't know, you know what I'm saying? Uh, I don't know. That went somewhere I didn't mean for it to go. But technology yeah, always does. It does That's exactly. Yeah. So, what about our robot friends like Arnie? What what sort of skin tents can we create for them? Oh yeah, there are some projects that are looking into the possibility of robot skin, which sounds very Terminator esque at first. As a kid, I always found that fascinating how the Terminator. He has this endoskeleton Mm -hmm. that is robotic, and then he's covered in human skin, this living human tissue, uh, because he's disguising and because whatever their weirdo time travel system, you can only send a living thing back in time or something. But I always found it interesting to think, well, how does that skin behave? How is it working? How is it jiving with that robot underneath it? One of the big things would be that the skin is this layer of sense. It allows us to touch things and feel the environment around us. Mm -hmm. So while we're not necessarily looking to grow Arnold Schwarzenegger's skin around all of our robots, the idea of creating a skin-like barrier, the skin-like layer that is used to sense the world, that is very much on roboticist minds. Okay, well, let me describe something to you that is extremely rudimentary version of that. Okay. Like, I even sort of see it as, like, a metal robot, like, squirted with... Do, okay, <laughs> okay, basically. A team of researchers at Pitt University made predictions regarding the behavior of Belozov Zabitansky, BZ gel, and that's a material that was first fabricated in the late 90s and is shown to pulsate in the absence of any external stimuli. Mm-hmm. In fact, under certain conditions, the gel can sit in a Petri dish and resembles a beating heart. So there's a little creepy element And there. that's without stimuli? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So it needs stimuli to stop the pain. This sounds like a, a great idea <laughs> that we code our robots in this. I was about to say, it seems like uh, you're going there with the plot line. Yeah. So Anna Balaz, she's the distinguished professor of chemical and petroleum engineering in Pitt Swanson School of Engineering, says, think of it like human skin, which can provide signals to the brain that something on the body is deformed or hurt. The gel has numerous far-reaching applications, such as artificial skin. That could be sensory, which she says is the holy grail in robotics. Hmm. You throw in haptic technology for virtual reality yeah. environments, and the applications there become obvious as well. If we're sending, say, a robotic probe out to another world, and we want to sense that world as we would sense it there physically, mm-hmm. then it makes sense to have that kind of technology involved with the robot that we send. Well, I was thinking about that, too, in the context of the virtual sex episode mm-hmm. that we did, especially with another little technology here, or big technology, is stretchable electronics. Ah. Yeah, and this electronic skin could bring touch sensitivity to machines. So this is a more, well, I think of it as a more sophisticated version. So the gentlest pressure that human skin can detect is about one kilopascal. 
but the stretchable skin can actually detect pressures that are 1,000 times more gentle. Wow, like a ghost sneezing on you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, It's based on organic transistors. It's made of uh, elastic material sandwiched between two electrodes. And it's a highly sensitive surface that could help robots pick up delicate objects without breaking them. (laughs) Delicate objects, I think, means us, right, Mm -hmm. in the future. We've talked about that, too. Give prosthetics a sense of touch, which would be super cool, and give surgeons finer control over tools for minimally invasive surgery. Well, there you have it. The future of skin is bright, full of vat-grown custom skin. Pulsating gel. Pulsating gel that we're spraying onto our robots. It's going to be an amazing time to live in. Mm. Let's check in with our skinless robot, shall we? Yeah, yeah. Let's get some listener mail. All right, here's one we received from our listener, Scott. Scott writes in and says, Hey, guys, I stumbled across your podcast a few weeks ago, and I've been greedily gobbling up episodes ever since. I just listened to the Lucid Dreaming episode, and I wanted to share some of my experiences with Lucid Dreaming. When I first started working on the night shift as an RN, I would have extremely vivid lucid dreams almost every time I slept. I really enjoyed my experiences while lucid dreaming, and although I could never exercise complete control over the dream environment, I could usually do things like fly, teleport through walls, and breathe underwater. Somewhat less enjoyable were the episodes of false awakenings that I began to have after especially stressful days. I would, quote-unquote, wake up, lying in my bed, and then I would slowly realize that I was still dreaming. I did some research, and I found some reality checks that came in handy. Jumping or skipping seemed to work especially well for me. If I was dreaming, I would leap in slow motion. If I wasn't dreaming, I would just feel a little silly. The false awakening got a little unnerving when I began having as many as eight of them in a row. However, false awakenings did help me learn how to recognize dreams, and now I have lucid dreams about three times a week. Thanks for the great podcast. Keep up the good work. And then he also adds, Julie, have you noticed any limits on your control of your lucid dreams? For instance, when I fly in my dreams, I find that I usually can't fly any higher than the treetops. How Um, high can you fly, Julie? (laughs) How high can I fly? I can fly pretty well. It's one of the. I thought it was so interesting that he brought that up because it it's variable. Like it's it's so mental because I can get up really, really, really high and see sort of like what you would think of as like not not the view of a state that mm-hmm. particular geographical area, but it takes so much effort to try to keep going higher and higher because I find that I keep dropping mm-hmm. in my dreams and then I have to get myself back up again. So uh, it sort of depends on what I'm doing. If I'm just flying down a sidewalk looking in shop windows, I don't need to go so high. On a related note to the dreaming, last night was the first night that I tried out this app on my iPhone called Dream On, like dream colon on. Mm-hmm. The way it supposedly works is that you turn it on when you go to bed. You have it plugged into the wall and you have it laying face down on the bed next to you, like at the corner of the bed. Mm-hmm. And that it'll detect your motions, like can supposedly tell how much you're moving around. Mm -hmm. And then it can figure out when you're in deep sleep based on your lack of motion. And you can have it play a preset sound to let you know that this is the time when you should be dreaming. If not alert you into a lucid state, then at least color your dreams with some sort of a soundscape. That sounds like the beginnings of what we talked about, the Travel Lodge Mm -hmm. 2050 study, right? Where they were talking about trying to influence your dreams and give you a nice dream. Yeah. And the app has some sort of dream journal apparatus as well because the people who made it want us sort of keep track on how people are using it and what effect it's having. I I did not have any good experiences with it last night because the cat was very vocal about 
becoming an indoor cat. Did you dream of a goat producing spiderweb milk? No, I dreamt of a cat that would shut up for an hour straight so I could sleep. That then turned into a goat? Yeah. But I'm going to keep trying it out and see if it does anything for me. It's a free download if anyone else wants to try it. There are some like in-app purchases if you want to get like different sounds, but you can use it as is and you can incorporate your own music tracks off your phone without any kind of additional price. So, oh, uh, okay. you know, if, if anyone else wants to try it out, let me know. I would love to hear what your experiences are with it, and hopefully I'll have some sort of noteworthy dreaming experience with it myself. I like this. You're collecting data now, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. How do you get in touch with us? Well, you can find us on Facebook, as always. We are Stuff to Blow Your Mind on there. And you can also find us on Twitter, where our Twitter handle is Blow the Mind. One word. And you can also drop us a line at BlowTheMind at Discovery.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.